Yeah. I really didn't plan this podcast to be like, let's shit on Jeffrey Hinton hour, but it's <laughs> becoming that. And I, look, it's, I think you, you make so many great points that this guy, now I'm but saying not, it out loud, I'm like, yeah. he's definitely protecting his legacy. And Chris, we start off with this leaked internal Google document. We have no moat and neither does open AI. Yeah, it's interesting because they basically finish it finish it by saying open ai doesn't matter it's pretty pretty brutal and scathing i I, there were so many takeaways from this document for me i've since heard that it wasn't even necessarily someone who was working we on the ai team so it was just someone who wrote this was more looking at the higher level strategy of how things are playing out but i also thought what it does is really validates this position around open source. And for those that haven't read this internal document that's leaked, it's essentially saying that as open source models or large language models are advancing, they can run on phones and the community is able to, I I guess the word's not train it, but run inference on it. Is that, would that be correct? Yeah, exactly. Well, it's both. And like, I think the really interesting points are they say they are lapping us. The open source community is lapping us, Google, in terms of what they've got. And the words that really stood out to me were scalable personal AI, as in there are models that people can run on their own hardware, on their phones, on their toaster, as someone pointed out with a Raspberry Pi, that are unrestricted and they're free. And they're better in a lot of cases, in a lot of use cases. It just seemed to me like what this is really saying is that everyone's going to have access to this technology. It's just going to become something you put in every application and on every device you run and you can just use these models. And if you're using those models to ask a lot of the questions or get the information that you would have traditionally gone to Google for, and I'm not necessarily talking about up-to-date information or travel searches or things like that they are talking about up-to-date information because they say these models because of their size like they say the giant models are slowing us down the smaller ones you can retrain them so quickly they call it stackable you can stack these models together get up to date and you know diverse information and retrain the models cheaply and cheaply keep them up to date so i think that's what google's talking about like we can't just rely on having the biggest and best model because the smaller ones when adapted for purpose are actually better they're faster they're cheaper and they're unrestricted yeah i guess my point earlier was though that if all of this i don't want to call it traffic anymore but if i can go to my phone load an app open up some sort of agent and i ask it questions that are related to my data my world my view trained with memory of all the things that are in my universe. Yeah. I'm going to go to that. I'm going to get no ads. I don't need to, you know, sift through search results. And and previously we said one of the applications of this was kind of boring around search, but I'm starting to think that this, this is fundamentally a crisis for Google's entire cash cow and, and business. Yeah, like I, I think it's a personal productivity thing. These are, these are things that directly influence your personal productivity. And I think that's something people naturally gravitate towards because it's just your day-to-day life. You, you're going to go with what's most convenient for you. And I, I think you're right. I've noticed it myself this week. I've been dabbling with a, a lot more code than I had previously. And I used to go to Google and Google the error codes, Google the tracebacks, Google the, you know, all these elements of developing an application or just Mm. asking for the best approach to do something because I haven't coded in a decade. And ChatGPT right now is able to just give me back the answers. There's no sifting through. It gives me very specific code examples to my use case. And I'm not going to Google at all. In fact, I haven't been to Google once. Yeah, and you don't. You also don't have that context switch of the sort of flow of programming. You know, you can keep going in context. And I think a lot of being productive as a programmer is knowing what the next thing is to do. And when you're in that mindset, you can get to the next thing and there's nothing blocking you. You can get a lot more done in an hour than you might get done in a day if if you just always have that next answer available. One of the other parts I took away from this, we have no mode is, Things that we consider, this is what the note said, things that we consider major open problems are solved in people's hands today. Large language models on phones, people are already running foundation models on a Pixel 6, scalable personal AI, you can fine tune a personalized AI on your laptop in an evening, Mm. responsible release. This one isn't solved, 
so much uh there are entire websites full of art models with no restrictions whatsoever and the text is not far behind so it's basically saying that like the idea of responsible release of this technology is kind of over because it's already yeah. out in the hands of the masses a direct quote from the article was or whatever you call it memo or something was anyone seeking to use large language models for unsanctioned purposes can take their pick of the freely available models like there is no restriction here because people can use these for whatever they want and they said that why would anyone like the more tightly that Google and OpenAI and everyone controls their model, the more attractive they make the open source alternatives because they're not restricted and they don't cost any money. Well, relatively speaking, you've obviously got to have the hardware. Yeah, if it's somewhat free to use outside of the hardware and just like installing it on your device and you can train it for a mission or purpose specifically, as I said, I think one of the biggest use cases is just your own context and your own point of view. And I think mm. that's what's upset people with OpenAI's approach of training it to a certain worldview or trying to basically restrict how it outputs based on a worldview or a particular set, like, you know, worldview in general. And we said this early on, what did we want when this first came out? We didn't want to be holden to some uh, company. We just wanted a component that is a large language model to work with in software development or in our daily lives that was unrestricted, that we could do whatever we wanted it with. And what's fascinating about it is like a lot of the things that I prophesized and said were just 100% wrong because I was saying they're going to take this away. We're not going to have access to it. We need to like, you know, be hoarders in terms of data, but quite the opposites happen. There's almost this abundance of, of data. There's so many models coming out. There's so many different ways you can do it. And it's actually causing as acknowledged in this paper um, that, the, the big players are like, oh, geez, we need to embrace open source because they're winning and it's getting better. Like, it's it's really the best possible outcome that could have happened here, I think. Yeah, it's a very well-written document. It also relates mm. the rise of uh, stable diffusion and its open source community and also mid-journey with, you know, a couple of people essentially making DALI irrelevant by open AI closed source because you've got this whole open source community well, specifically, not not so much mid-journey, but with stable diffusion, just making it better and better and better and better at a much more rapid rate. And it even calls out the timeline of how quickly since the Meta's Llama uh, model came out, how quick it's advanced. And to me, you know, when that leaked, it, it seemed sort of like jokes on Meta, but this calls out maybe it's not because now there's hundreds of people around the world improving their model that they can take back into their own code base to improve their own products and services. Some of the biggest tech companies in the world are built on open source. I mean, Amazon is really just providing hardware and licensing. Licensing isn't the right word, but allowing the deployment of open source software. So, and Linux is probably the most used server operating system in the world. It, it's it's a It's a model that you know, it's hard to understand, but it works because you've got the best minds thinking about it. And and they have this fundamental hacker mentality of it should be open, it should be free, which just more and more it's making open AI itself seem like a contradiction because it's the least open out of absolutely everything. Yeah, literally their name now contradicts their position and what might potentially also make them irrelevant, as this document points out. The other thing I found fascinating is just how it calls out the legalities of things that the open source community can do because of like personal use copyright licensing where you can go and basically train it and do things a company could never do or a research department could never do. But individuals can just go out and improve these models without any concern for, for copyright. Great or point. Because, yeah, that was the fear. It's like if you were going to have to rely on the companies that could afford these vast data centers in order to, say, fine-tune or train a model, like if you had to go through OpenAI to train something that may not be allowed by that, now that goes away because you can train on your own GPU at home or your own MacBook or whatever. So you're right, that that personal creativity, that personal freedom outside the scope of, of what's, you know, legal or whatever um, is, is very, very exciting. It's what we've talked about repeatedly as being so important, that ability to experiment. And we've been given that in spades. And, uh, you know, you and I have been doing a lot of that ourselves. 
I thought the the most scathing thing, just going back to that point that they made uh, this author made around OpenAI, and in the end, OpenAI doesn't matter. They are making the same mistake we are in their posture relative to open source, and their ability to maintain an edge is necessarily in question. Open source alternatives can and will eventually ellipse them unless they change their stance. In this respect, at least we can make the first move. So basically, Google needs to go full, like embrace open source, try and build and own an ecosystem around it so everything's built on top of them. But maybe it's too late now. Well, and, uh, you know, when I saw that, I actually found that really exciting that this was sort of Google's internal official stance. But it sounds like based on what you've said, the source of this is in question. Like, is it someone with the actual power to enact what they're talking about? Or is it just some caring person within the organization who this is what they want to see rather than it being some official Google internal directive? Yeah, I'm not sure... I, I really don't know enough about the origin of it, but I think it's a very well-written piece and the, the, the observations. The point, right? like, yeah, like the, the points made in it are so salient that it doesn't really matter who wrote them. You know, it, it's a really, really good take on the situation regardless of the source. Well, in the past, I mean, I, I made that claim that maybe ChatGBT becomes this universal everything app in the future where like all of these plugins come out for it and it is truly this ecosystem where you interact with your model and it it knows everything about you and it's like one app to rule them all and it's just winner takes all Mm. and and that could still potentially happen there's nothing to say that won't happen or play out whether it's them or someone else um, i'm not sure but at the same time you do start to wonder if other alternative models are open source and these plugins can easily be adapted why the hell would you pay for gpt4 access if in a couple of months from now, we get to the equivalent level of GPT-4 in the open source community. Yeah, and and portability, right, as well. With this, they call it LoRa, which I find really confusing because there's another technology called LoRa, which is like lo- long-range um, radio signals with low power that you use on farms and in remote locations. So they've used the same name, which is really confusing. But anyway, what the, the, it stands for in this context is low rank factorizations, but it's a technique where they can make the, the creation of these models a lot sim- more simplistic in terms of the GPU usage, but still get extremely good results. But what this means is that the models are becoming smaller and more portable. So uh, I bought one of these uh, NVIDIA Jetsons, which is like a, it's like a Raspberry Pi, which is a small single board computer, sort of the size of a credit card. This one's bigger. This one's sort of more like the size of, say, a phone. Um, and it's a GPU that's completely portable. So you can, and I've done it, run these models on a device that's small enough that it's a phone, right? I mean, I know you can run it on a phone, so it's not quite the same, but the idea is these things will get smaller. It has no, it doesn't need internet access and you can run things like ChatGPT, not ChatGPT, but like ChatGPT, the other models on this thing and have it take input from the real world, sound, video, everything. And it can run. So it's sort of like a mini electronic brain. Yeah, exactly. And you can put them in robots. People have done it. If you search on YouTube for NVIDIA Jetson, the things people are making with these are truly exciting. It can see, it can hear, it can respond to those inputs, and it can do the large language model inference as well. So the the thing I was talking about, like making your own personal assistant, uh, a lot of the things that you would need, that sort of portable device, are now real i mean it's practical the only thing stopping you is the time to to develop the applications you're interested in it's very exciting i also think that a big part of it too is once you can scale it down to these devices it can be such an important part of the program itself where you get all of these added capabilities of almost having this sentient sort of i I hate to use the word sentient because i know it upsets people but I still think well, it can think, right? It can, it can, it can make decisions. It's, it's not just a sort of blind thing that's following its, its programming. Yeah, yeah, and I think that's what's exciting about it because you can give it all these inputs and then get it to, to make decisions based on those inputs. Uh, I think for robotics, it's going to be so fascinating what happens. I know there's a lot of interesting stuff already happening there, but I really think turning this into something that it's you know a small thing that you can carry in your pocket and plug inputs into it probably just describing a phone at this point (laughs) you have this like super intelligence everywhere you go and the applications that can be built on that are going to be 
game-changing. Well, and we all know how technology goes. It always gets smaller and faster. So the inevitability is, and we've discussed this before in a sort of more doom and gloom sense, but the, the inevitability is that AI models are going to be in everything with an electronic in it. Like it's going to be in everything. It's, it's just an inevitability now. So if you're OpenAI right now, what's your next move? You've read this. I mean, we have no idea what technology they have. But it seems like my prediction before where they become more of a like Dropbox consumer tech company might be the only path forward if this is true, if you believe everything that's said in this document, where they build the sort of, they make all this technology accessible to the masses and that's just what the company is. It's more like a, it it truly is more like a Google Play where they made search really accessible. You know Uh, what I think? I don't think they care about making money the people who are really, really doing the work at OpenAI, I think they care about the technology and they care about what they can do with it. I I think all the plays at commercialization are literally faints in that direction to appease their investor overlords. I don't think they actually care because if you look at what they're focusing on now, like we wanted to talk about chat GPT code, which is a a new thing where you can upload a bunch of data and actually have OpenAI build and run its own code in order to understand that data. Um, if you think about something like that, if they really wanted to commercialize and they really wanted to make money, they've got a fertile ground to do that. Like the plug-in ecosystem, the, you know, monetizing their existing models, allowing the private distribution of these for big corporations, which I know, again, we've seen faints at that, but I just wonder how serious they are about that side of the business. I just, I just can't help but wonder if they're just you know, pretending like that's what they care about. But really what they care about is advancing the state of, of AGI and the the AI technology in general. I think they just want to be the vanguard of this technology. And all that stuff is literally just a sideshow to appease people. Well, I saw a recruitment tweet on Twitter a couple of days ago with someone. If you're interested, if you're passionate about building safe AGI, that was literally how they led the mm. job uh, description for this particular role. So it does make you think maybe they're just working on agency and multimodal and memories and like all these capabilities that you would need to build what we think it, it is some sort of artificial general intelligence. Yeah, like, you know, like Elon Musk with SpaceX. Admittedly, he's more openly stated with his goals, but it's like SpaceX launching like satellites for companies and stuff. That's not really the goal there. His goal is to get to Mars and you know, if if making money off reusable rockets and chucking a few satellites and Starlink into space helps with that goal, then so be it. And I feel like these guys must have a similar mentality. That they're, they're really, really trying to make the best possible AI and the rest just doesn't matter to them. I think also I've mentioned this previously on many episodes. It's that innate feeling of, I just want to see what we can build. Like, can we actually do this and what will happen if we do? And Obviously, there's the doomsdaying aspects of that, and we'll get to that in a minute with the godfather of AI quitting Google, um, yeah. who truly, when you read uh, his history, is uh, rightfully so the godfather. But yeah, you can think about all the doom and gloom ap- like parts of that and go down the rabbit hole there. But fundamentally, I'm also of the view, like, let's see what happens. Like, this could bring huge innovation to humanity. And you wonder if that's really what is motivating OpenAI. And on the other hand, you've got Microsoft. They just announced a bunch of like Bing updates and stuff. We were going to cover them, but quite frankly, uh, it's pretty boring. But yeah, every time you mention Bing, I just instantly feel bored and depressed. (laughs) Like I just, I just can't do it. Like, you know, it's just- What is interesting though, is they're just replicating a couple of months later though, OpenAI's chat functions. Like they're they're integrating the Wolfram Alpha plugin, the- uh, what is it? Open table, like a bunch of like, you know, plugins and stuff like that. I, I just, I don't know. Maybe I'm naive, but I don't really get that excited about using this sophisticated I mean, chatbot to book a reservation. Doesn't it show how quickly our expectations adjust and you get desensitized to how amazing this technology is? Like if they'd come out with that stuff cold, you'd just be like, oh my God, this is the most amazing thing I've ever seen. But because of the the rapid pace of innovation and our and really the 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 access to this technology, 
um, you just, you just, it's just not that exciting because in the scheme of everything else, it's just really the gradual and slow commoditization of that technology that we're seeing. Yeah. I thought another going back to the Google has no moat, uh, document. One of the other call outs was that idea of data quality scales better than data size. And that's what they're seeing in the open source models. Yeah. So they don't have as much data. Obviously, they don't have access, but they have high quality and they are able to, uh, you know, give a lot of feedback to the the systems in order to say like, you know, this is like the real meaty stuff. And we, we've talked about this before, actually using the AIs, like getting the outputs, I forget the name of it, from GPT-4 to train your own open source model. That's right. So that's how they did like, um, what was the one, uh, one of the open source data sets they did um, was literally based on that, which was, you know, doing a bunch of prompts through chat GPT, extracting the sort of meat of how it works and then using that to train them like Llama and not Llama, sorry, Alpaca. Um, and yeah, like I think it's a pretty common technique. And that's that Lora thing I mentioned earlier, where they're really trying to um, work out what is the essence of what's going on here. And it's working. It's actually leading to these smaller and smaller uh, open source models that just don't need to be as large as the large models um, and get similar results. It's absolutely fascinating how well they're doing that. I watched a really long interview. Uh, I think it was on CBS Mornings. And I'll get more, more context for everyone on this in a moment. But Jeffrey mm. Hinnon, this godfather of AI who left Google warning of dangers ahead with AI. And I, I want to do a bit of a reality check on what he actually said versus what the media said, because I yeah, think they've like spun it just like into doom and gloom. As soon as I saw it on news.com.au, I'm like, what the, I mean, this is really, really intense now when it's on like mainstream rag trash news. <laughs> yeah. So that I, that I read every day. <laughs> the point I would make though about him in that interview is one of the things he said and it's similar to what Sam Altman also recently said is that the the idea, like he, he was really interested in the human brain as a researcher. And one of the things that humans can do really well is take a, you know, read a smaller subset of data. Because if you think about how a machine learns today or GPT-4s learn, it consumes more data than we could consume in millions of human lives. Oh, and yeah. so we're able to take a very small amount and reason and build sort of weights in our own neural net in our brains in mm. order to be far smarter at reasoning and a lot of things that yeah, GPT-4 can't it's like, do. Do you need to understand every book ever read in the entire Wikipedia to be able to write an essay? Like, obviously not. Yeah, and so the, the point he made is the methods like uh, transformers and backpropagation, two of the big breakthroughs, he, he invented the idea of backpropagation in the 80s. Uh, but, so but, he invented neural nets, essentially. Yeah. Um, and everyone thought he was crazy in the 80s and stupid, but all he needed was time. He needed more data and more compute power. And that's yeah. uh, what led to almost all the, all the breakthroughs here. But this idea of, you know, larger and larger training sets it is not necessarily the path forward because... So, you this know, isn't just some random engineer at Google quitting over his fears of this. This is someone who's like a serious player uh, who's been there from the beginning and he's making a stand with his own employment. Yeah, I mean, so maybe- let's let's back up and I'll give you plenty of context yeah, here. So, the, the big news item was the New York Times had this article, the godfather of AI leaves Google and warns of danger ahead. And this is Jeffrey Hinton. Now, he uh, lives in Toronto. He most recently was working at Google. He originally left the United States because of his early research on AI and he didn't want to take funding from the Pentagon because he thought ethically, I don't want to invent robot soldier, like robot AI soldiers that indiscriminately kill. So he fled the US to take research grants in Toronto, ended up working at Google. Now, this guy is responsible. That The reason they call him the godfather is uh, I think it's Ilya Yukowski. I, I might be like I, I'm, I think I'm getting names mixed up, but basically the guy that uh, that is the chief scientist at OpenAI. I just all of a sudden forget his name. He was he worked with uh, Jeffrey Hinton uh, at at a company. They created a company that could recognize what was in images. So you give it an image, and it's like there's a dog in it. 
Google yeah. bought that company some time ago for $40 million. Ilya left and went to OpenAI. Jeffrey stayed at Google. And so they all sort of spawn. The reason they call him the Godfather, it's all of his students are the ones that are that uh, are sort of see, releasing yeah. all of the the new tech. And so he he the look, I think the main reason he actually left Google was he just wanted freedom to be able to talk about uh you know, a lot of his work and and make it have some sort of meaning in the future. I think he just wanted to speak freely and be like, hey, I, I told you guys back in the 80s, all this stuff would come to fruition. And I think also what he's seen now with the the sort of arms race between Microsoft and Google and a, a bit of open AI now as well, but it's it's just Microsoft, let's be honest. So it's like Microsoft and Google is they're rushing to try and outcompete each other. And he is concerned about what that will lead to. And one of the points he calls out in this interview is he used to think that AGI or some sort of singularity type scenario was 20 to 50 years away where this intelligence would be far smarter than the human brain. But now he sort of says his timeline on that's more like five, uh, you know, 20 years. It's come down to 20, but conceivably it could be five years. And I think that's what got everyone freaked out. And he's just saying that, you know, if we, if we have a super intelligence, he's of that belief that everyone else has, like maybe this you know, a, a more intelligent being than a human won't value us at all. And so he's warning about it as well. And he related it to the invention of the wheel, the industrial revolution, or the Manhattan Project developing nuclear, uh, like having a nuclear weapon. I don't disagree with him, but do you, this, excuse my cynicism, but do you think maybe he just was starting to feel like he wasn't so relevant anymore? And this is his way of bringing himself back into relevance? Maybe. <laughs> I, mean, I, I think that's a pretty, pretty uh, harsh criticism without having the full context of this guy. But I do. I kind of but thought. But it's like, you know, if, if your whole life you were like into curling, right? And no one gives us, no one cares about curling at all. And then suddenly curling becomes the most popular sport in the world. But you're in some organization that prevents you from talk, like being a curling commentator. You know, like you want to get in amongst it. It's like what he cares about, what he wants to be involved in. But really, like, I mean, I'm not saying I'm an expert, but I'd never heard of the guy, you know, and um, I just, and now I have, now he's everywhere. You yeah, know, like, I yeah. just wonder, I just wonder. I mispronounced the name of Ilya before. It's uh, Satskeva, Ilya Satskeva. He's a chief scientist at OpenAI. No offense, just to but clarify I still don't think audience. you're exactly nailing it. <laughs> no, it's terrible. My pronunciation's horrible, but at least I tried. As I said before, don't worry. AI will take care of that for you in the future. You won't need to speak with your own voice. It's really hard time. recording in real time and having to pronounce very difficult names that I've never said in my entire life or read. But I digress. True. But True. yeah, so going back to, to this uh, article, yeah, I think he came out, he did a bit of a media blitz. He was in the New York Times, CNN, CBS, all the major networks. So I, it could be a, a part of legacy protection as well. Like, you know, I kind of conceived all this. He he's, he's definitely not in the interviews saying, oh, you're too kind with the Godfather thing. He just like really embraces the Godfather. It's, yeah, it's like Tim Berners-Lee comes out every couple of years to remind everyone he invented the internet. Like, I know all the comments now are going to be like, how dare you criticize the Godfather that really, let's be honest, most people hadn't heard about a couple of weeks ago. Yeah, yeah, exactly. But, but it is interesting. There's a, there's a sort of interplay between the Google memo coming out and him. Like, because on one hand, you've got Google being like, or someone at Google being like, we're behind, we're not keeping up. And then you've got the other guy being like, oh, I'm quitting because I'm really worried that we're going to accidentally destroy the entire world. It's like quite the contrast and very possible within an organization like Google. There is no way that everybody knows everything that's going on there. And so like to give the guy some credit, there might be, as we've discussed before, a lot more happening at Google than we we suspect. Oh, yeah. I mean, clearly this guy, I mean, he even said in this interview that, he wasn't that impressed with ChatGPT when it came out because they've been playing with large language models for five plus years. And basically- <laughs> That so sounds like when you say you like a band and someone's like, you know what, they were, I've known them for five years. I'm yeah, yeah. I, I was listening to them ages ago. I, it's hard. Yeah. Like, I oh, don't, I you like that song. That's their shit song. Yeah. I really didn't play at this podcast to be like, let's shit on Jeffrey Hinton hour. But it's becoming that. And I look, it's I think you you make so many great points that this guy now I'm but saying not, it out loud. I'm like yeah. he's definitely protecting his legacy. But 
Let's just go back to this guy's achievements. He's like really interested in the brain, starts studying psychology. He's and and he's like, well, we're gonna have to mimic the brain. Everyone laughs at him back in the eighties. Now mm-hmm. everything he sort of predicted, the back propagation, invented basically well, he invented the modern neural net. That's all come true and now is enabling yeah. all these technologies. And to be more charitable, it might just be that he was in a position where he couldn't do what he loves and what, like you say, is his legacy. I mean, it probably is he's seeing all this stuff that's going on and saying, you know what, it's this isn't happening here for me at Google. I need to go somewhere I can be, you know, at the coalface of it and be influential. I don't think he cares about that anymore. He's 75 years old. I think it's a legacy thing. I, I think you nailed it and I hate to say it, but I think it's a legacy thing. <laughs> That's right. When I'm 70, I don't know what I'll be doing when I'm 75. Interesting. Yeah, so it's um anyway, I don't know how we got we got really sidetracked on this Jeffrey Hinnon thing, but it, it it's just another one of these people, very well-respected people in the community coming out and saying, "Hey, we need to we need to do something here." And on that note, let's just move on before we get in trouble for for trash talking this guy. Sure. <laughs> oh man. So we we You've really derailed me. <laughs> That's all right. Um, so I think something else I wanted to talk about was this paper that came out during the week about Open Assistant. And I don't know if you've heard about this one, but the idea was that they wanted to democratize large language model alignment. And by alignment, they mean alignment with human preferences. And I think it's a really interesting one because the whole idea was to get models that humans react to with I like that response. So the whole thing was based on human generated assistant style conversations. So very, very similar to what Stanford did with Alpaca. So they got the leaked Facebook data set, Llama, and then they got a whole bunch of conversations that they actually use ChatGPT for to give it a reward model and say, these are the kind of conversations you need to be having, Llama. You know, and then that led to what we get with the Llama CPP and all the models we have now. So these guys decided to do it on a much larger scale and they decided to do it in an open source way. So they've released the paper, they've released their training method, um, and they've released the data and the code. So you can just do all of this yourself, which is quite profound because it means you can actually now, using this data set of theirs, take any corpus of data and train it using their conversations that show it how to be an agent on top of that, which is extremely, extremely powerful. But just to give you some stats on this, they generated 161,000 messages across 66,000 conversations, all done by humans. It's in 35 languages. They had 461,000 quality ratings. So that's like telling it, no, that's bad. Yes, this is good, et cetera, et cetera. So it's like human annotations. And this was done with 13,500 volunteers. Their results are the approval rating for their the answers to their thing, which was done in an anonymous way, is 48.3% theirs was chosen and 51.7% ChatGPT was chosen. So they've essentially replicated ChatGPT using open source data and you know data they generated themselves using real humans. What's the underlying model that they're using? Well, it's their model. They made it. So the, they've got a data set that they use just using publicly available data you can get on Hugging Face, you know, all the different sets that are available like Common Crawl and, um, you know, the Reddit comments and the the various sets that are out there, right? So, so this is their own large language model and then the training data is actual human conversations giving it feedback. Yeah, so that ex- exactly. And so... And they've released all the code, all the data under fully permissible licenses. You can literally use it for anything you want. It's absolutely amazing. So this is and yet I- another attack, like attack, I hate to say attack, but attack from open source yet again, sort of yeah. on I chat mean, GPT. It makes those Google comments so relevant. I mean, they are lapping them. It's absolutely amazing. And they also, what's really interesting is that they laid out their technique exactly how they did it. You know, like you can you can replicate it. I mean, they gave everything. And so just so everybody understands, basically the procedure is this. They get human-generated desired behaviors. They then use that to make a reward model. So that is then run through the neural net with the backpropagation that that guy invented. And, um, and then they use that reward model to fine-tune the model so it will maximize that reward. And what I found interesting about it, aside from the fact that you can then go and apply this to your own data sets, is that 
the human generated bit, I just, I just got stuck on that phrase and I'm like human generated desired behaviors. And then I thought, well, okay, cool. So they've got 161,000 conversations, 13,000 people being like, this is what humans want from this. Like, give us this. But I just thought, imagine if step one wasn't done by humans, but it was done by AI. Like, it's like, these are my AI generated desired behaviors. Here's what I'd like you to do. Or, you know, you have someone malicious and they're like, here's what I'd like you to do as an evil person or whatever. Like, imagine how different the models could turn out if you you subbed out that. So you could, in theory, you could rapidly train a model this way with the AI conversations. Is that what you're saying? Rapidly. And, you know, this wasn't done. This wasn't done on, like, the entire Microsoft data farm or anything like that. They did this with relatively modest hardware. I mean, you can you can run it yourself. But then, like, in theory, though, that next model that you train rapidly off that first iteration, you could then, what, train again and again and again. Like, it's exponential. Well, as, we, as we discussed earlier, you can stack these models together. So, you can have the, the models almost running sort of, like, you know, in parallel or communicating with one another and things like that. So you can, and this is what that that Google document pointed out so clearly, is when you've got these models that can be trained so quickly, the smaller models, you can iterate on them until you get them where you want them to be. It's not like you have to wait for GPT-5 or some shit where they've just had to spend like a year training it on the best and you know, mo- like hardest to get hardware. You can ju- you can just do it every day. You can keep pounding away at some model until it's doing exactly what you want it to do, based on reward models that you define or they define or you adjust to to suit. I, there's got to be something in this. Maybe we should try this and then report back <laughs> yeah. to everyone. I, I think it's really interesting. I I really this is something I'd like to try and uh and. And see if it works. <laughs> it, yeah, it does exactly. feel like the open source community could be the breakthrough here in terms of developing some sort of, uh, I don't know what to call it anymore, but like AGI, singularity, whatever you want to call it, basically an AI that can make better AIs. Yeah, exactly. It's like this kind of technique that leads to that, right? Like once you give the AI the ability, because you talked about, you know, your efforts earlier where you sort of did the sort of auto GPT thing where you've got one that's writing its own code and then and then running that code or one that's taking like input from previous iterations and using that, sorry, output from previous iterations and using that as input to sort of get this, this sort of resident AI that can keep running, right? But this is the next level where the AI is like told, hey, you've got this ability. You can go off and train your own models either for specific things you'd like to do or, and this is the super intelligence thing, you can go train a model that's better than you, maybe just slightly better than you. doesn't have to be significantly better. Go train one that's 1% better than you and then have it train the next iteration. Like think about that. This is exactly what they were prophesizing could happen. And I'm not saying that Open Assistant is the game changer that does that. What I'm saying is that they're proving that this kind of ability is there, you know, latent within these systems. Like we can train the next iteration using the current iteration. And it might not be quite good enough to get to the the general intelligence, but it's getting closer. I mean, it's just a matter of people starting to try. And you, you sort of wonder at these bigger organizations. They, I mean, they've obviously realized this. Um, I don't know. Like, it, we're getting really close to actually being able to do it. I can't get out of my head. I was just trash talking. <laughs> Jeffrey hinted for like 10 minutes there. And my point that I want to make, though, related to that is, what do you think about the reasoning capabilities? Because he, he in this interview, and the interview was great. Jeffrey, if you're listening, I thought you were great. But... <laughs> but I, it's the reasoning capability of these models that I think is, um, is you know, he talks about the reasoning. Human reasoning is still far superior. And going back to that code example where I did write some uh, a Python script that would rewrite its own code over and over again. And eventually, I don't know if you'd call it hallucinating, but it does get to a point where it makes some fundamental error. Like it goes so hard down a path of of i don't want to call it reasoning but it just goes down a pathway trying to get to your goal so if it's like you know invent some like a clone of google photos or something and it hits a point where it's made some logical error that i would then have to go into the code step through it and be like okay it needs to head in a different direction now so i would 
call that roughly a bit of creativity and a bit of reasoning. But you're running one model to get one goal. The thing is, like, humans aren't perfect. Lots of humans live their life normally up to a point that makes some fundamental error that ruins their life or someone else's. It's it's normal for intelligence to not be on an individual level capable of doing everything. But as a society, as a group of intelligences, we can accomplish quite a lot. And I think that's what, you know, the early levels of AGI are going to be, right? It's going to be generational. There'll be evolution. There'll be generations of them that live and are destroyed and and they get better and they make better versions of themselves. We can't expect like the first crack at it to absolutely nail everything. And the second it makes a mistake, we're like, right, that's it. Doesn't work. Like, I think we need to think about it like that. Like- but my point's more to are large language models ever going to be good at reasoning or does a new technology have to come along in order to do that? And it sounds like it does. Yes, but they will make the new technology. I, I think there's you, enough. Do you reasoning. think they're that capable, like the LLMs advancing the way they are to do it? I don't know, but I mean, I'm just a human, so I couldn't possibly <laughs> evaluate that. As a human, you know, I, I I think my point is that whether they are or not today, the the rapid pace of technology, I think it's an inevitability that they will be. I I just don't know at what point we declare it that yeah, okay, now they're good enough to do it. But the point is they're getting closer and. We're seeing people do these experiments. Like if you look at some of the the prompt length updates, for example, like there was one released during the week called Unlimiformer, which essentially uses a technology to. Uh, it's not. It's not like a prompt compression. It's more like it evaluates the prompt in a way that it takes the essence of what the prompt is, and then is able to iterate running that through. Um, the model to essentially have unlimited prompt sizes and they're, they're getting incredibly good results for that. And there's another one that's been announced, but admittedly there's no paper and there's no code. So it could be, um, it could be BS, but it's called long boy, which I think is the great with two G's. I think it's a great name. And they're talking about having a 64 K prompt size, which is absolutely enormous. If you think about it, it's double what GPT four supposedly can do. And we've seen demos of that throughout the week. Obviously not us. We're not good enough to get access, but um, <laughs> but people have used it and they're saying like, here's an entire code base, write the docs for it and it can do it. You know, the other example we saw, and you'll put this um, article in the reference note, I'm sure a guy actually went and gave it 60 meg of, um, of US census data and told it to come up with hypotheses and then write a paper about it. And it wrote an entire paper about it, including figures and graphs and all that sort of stuff. He said it wasn't wonderful, but it did it in a few seconds, like a few seconds. It took 32,000, sorry, 60 meg of data um, and wrote a paper about it. Like that's absolutely- Can you just talk for, for those listening that don't understand the idea of prompt size? Like why is everyone in, in who's working with AI today really excited about larger prompt sizes? Well, because firstly, the amount of live context data you can give it. So like, you know, models are trained up to a point and they don't necessarily uh, retain all of that data. And especially like what we've been talking about today with the smaller models. So you were talking earlier about, you know, the essence of what a model is and saying, well, if I can train on a lot less data, I can do it faster and more cheaply. But it doesn't remember everything. It doesn't have all of, you know, human knowledge baked into it so it can't know that but if you have a high prompt size you can tell it here's all the relevant information to what you're trying to do here and you can use another model to actually summarize that information for it so you don't have to give it like if you're talking about you know um a a stock or something like that you don't have to give it the entire history of that company you can just give it all the salient points from the data like the financials and like the who the executives are and that kind of thing. So right? essentially with its like when it returns a response back to you, the it just has more context, like a sort of infinite brain. Is that how that's it, part, we should think about it? That's part one. That's part one. It can have a lot more information about what it's trying to do, but part two is that it can output a lot more because p- the prompt usually is what you put in and what it can put out. So if it can output a lot more information. Because remember, even with ChatGPT, you say, oh, well, I can just ask it to send me another message to continue. But then it needs the previous history in order to know what it said before. So it's cumulative. 
So if you can have a larger prompt size, it means you can actually output an entire paper, an entire book, you know, like an entire symphony, whatever it is, you can, it can do more. It can, it can take more in, it can hold more in its brain at once and it can output more. And I think that hold more in its brain is such a valuable point because as you said earlier, it's like with, with the point about, you know, humans don't have to read the entire history of the world in order to make simple decisions or simple inferences. And so, but this thing can, it can take in, uh, you know, huge, like imagine asking it questions about a book and it has a photorealistic memory of literally every single phrase and word in that book. Like it's just fascinating. And that's just the start. And, and people are it- doing this right now, right? Like there's a lot of examples if people have been looking where you can upload a PDF now and then ask questions specifically related to that PDF. And if you ask questions outside of that PDF, it's like, I don't know, because it's it's frame of reference is that yeah. PDF. This is essentially like more PDFs by expanding the well, token that's, size. That's using Langchain as well. So that's using an iterative process where it'll go through and score all the words in there and do sort of like a semantic search on getting the relevant summaries. And then it shoves those summaries into the 8K GPT-4 prompt size, for example. And then it makes an inference on that. But what I'm talking about is having the whole PDF and maybe a hundred more in its memory at the same time and then making inferences on all of it rather than the summaries. And then if you take it to the logical next level and say, well, you could still use the technology you know, like Langchain or a vector database where you take in, you know, enormous amounts of data and then the summaries fit into say 64K of data or something like that. Its abilities are going to be absolutely astonishing. So it actually makes a vector database way more powerful. I think so. Yeah. I don't think that larger prompt size necessarily makes vector databases irrelevant. And if anything, there'll probably be better technologies that come along that maybe replace vector databases. I'm no expert in it, but it seems to me like it's something now that people saw as a necessary evil because of restrictions in prompt size. But I think if anything, they're here to stay, although that technique is here to stay, because why wouldn't you always want a little bit more? Certainly the AI will. Like, Imagine if it remembers every conversation it's ever had, everything it's ever said, everything it's ever thought. It's like a, it literally is like a memory for the AI. Why would it, why would it discard that at any point? Like it's only gains for it. And as we've seen, like literally the memories of something like ChatGPT are used to go off and train a better and more capable model. So being able to remember its history can only certainly help it. Yeah, it, I mean, even working with it myself, like the limitations of what you can insert into a prompt, it, it like that's that's the frustration. So you can see why vector databases and the prompt size. I mean, it's high on my own personal wish list. I wish yeah. I could have access. Please, OpenAI gods, please. Well, and please. I think it's why people grasp at things like Longboy and Ulimiformer because. They're here now. You can actually use them. And I think there's always this thing on our podcast that I reflect on during the week is there's this gap between what we talk about and what's practical right now. And I think that bridging that gap is what a lot of people are putting their energy into now. Like, what can we do now with the actual technology? And, you know, and then how can we leverage the AI? Like, every week things are coming out of here's how to use it better. Here's how to get more out of what we have in in addition to the advancements in the core technology. Yeah, to me right now, there's no way of, of if someone wants to easily experiment with this technology, uploading every file on their computer to a system and then being able to run some sort of agent behind it, which keeps them abreast of important information that they're collecting in their daily lives. Or, or like to me, it's a distribution problem is we've, we've, gotten overwhelmed by the advancements in the technology but no one's really distributed the here and now of this technology like you know Mm. that whole thing of you think progress is going to be really quickly like the invention of the smartphone but then it takes a decade before the big the big apps are released like you know instagram and 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 sort of of looking back you will look at these phases as these these early foundational days of this stuff and and you know like oh if only we'd known this then kind of thing but that doesn't make it like you know extremely exciting being in amongst it and actually trying it and i think coming back to and i know we've refrained on it a lot uh today but 
the open source accessibility of it for someone technical is very exciting. The next phase has got to be providing that technology to other people in other industries and you know individuals who can try it for themselves and use it in a very accessible way. I agree. I think for all of us nerds, it's really exciting because we can play around with it. But I think the next evolution is giving this technology to the general masses. And I, I think that was really the breakthrough with ChatGPT. Everyone can use it. But to me, the next yeah. breakthrough is like bigger memories, agency, like automating things, potentially running simulations, all of these other aspects of it yeah. are, are the, next, the next wave. More than just doing your homework. During the week, my uh, teenage babysitter, he said his sister got done uh, in class for writing her homework using uh, chat GPT. And I was like, how did they know? And he's like, I think she left one of the as you know, an, that, AI, as an AI model or... things in there. So it's like it's it's impacting everyday people. But, you know, on a sort of more positive side, it's showing that like people want this. Like they, they can see the value in it. I mean, cheating at your homework is one thing, but, you know, it's it's. It is mainstream in that respect, but what isn't mainstream is is that next next generation of what what is capable. Yeah, it's almost like we're just playing around with the infancy capability of what these things can do. Mark Zuckerberg this week came out and said, "Mark Zuckerberg, no, he didn't say this. He's like the Mark Zuckerberg said, said. Mark Zuckerberg AI said. Mark Zuckerberg thinks <laughs> I am a large language model. I'm just saying the next <laughs> one. <laughs> do you all week, honestly? That'd be to the digress- ultimate meta game if he was AI all along. Like you'd just be like, of course I knew it. Yeah, he's definitely AI. Let's be honest. But AIs don't like to smoke meats as much as he does probably all this week all, all the all, you know like in my brain if i'm having a shower now you know how you'd have a thought like oh i should do that i've got this weird internal narrative now it's like i should like i'm talking like the ai does when it's setting goals in like um the, yeah the sort of agi uh, apps at the moment like i'm going i should do this the, you know, like that that phrasing in my mind now yeah, is I know similar what you mean. to. I told I told my son this morning. I forget what it was. Oh, he had to he had to clean the table right before he went to school. And I was thinking, is his brain going? I'm going to need some sort of you know wet wipe or uh, you know rag or something to clean this table. Like, and I wanted to watch him solve the problem to see like what his thought process was. But his strategy was basically just ignore it until the problem. <laughs> <laughs> So I don't know if the AI is going to be like that. Hopefully not. Yeah, I should get a dishcloth. I I, I should wipe it up. His, re- his reward function or his punishment <laughs> function. Yeah. Anyway, back to this this uh, story. Yeah, so Mark Zuckerberg says Meta wants to introduce AI agents to billions of people. We saw Snap. Snap is it Snapchat? I forget what it is. No, they changed their name to Snap. Snap. Okay, yeah. it is Snap now. Yeah. So they introduced a, an AI bot that no one likes or wants. But um, it sounds like. Zuckerberg and, and Meta really, and maybe thanks to the open source community, Llama is getting better and better, but they really believe that introducing agents to billions of people is the, the way to go. This does scare me a little bit because of his whole metaverse vision. Like you go into the metaverse, we talked about this two episodes ago, and there's all these AI agents and people you can interact with and this potentially- I mean, I think it's the only thing that makes that interesting, right? Like just talking to the psychos who populate the internet in a virtual reality is is awful. But thinking about that dynamic vision you've talked about with AI agents where the entire world and environment reacts to your interactions, that's exciting. Yeah, I think it could be the world's best video game, the biggest educational opportunity ever yes, um, moving yes. forward. So I think he's definitely now found some sort of like use case outside of a no-legged- metaverse and we've i'm not gonna go down that rabbit hole again um no but it might be just that the timing's caught up because so many people were criticizing the ai play but ai plus you know close to real sorry yeah uh, sorry vr plus close to real ai that's a game changer that's actually pretty interesting yeah to me like maybe meta stands to benefit most from this now that people are in the open source community are improving their models they've got great AR hardware and, uh, and you know, they've built a skill set around it. So potentially in the future, it's not Microsoft and Google that wins this race. It's, it's this really meta who no one would expect today, you know, comes from behind somewhat and takes control of it. But at the same time, I also feel like Mark Zuckerberg's out there right now looking for some breakthrough app like TikTok or Instagram to go and buy 
that mm. allows people to run agents and and do a lot of this stuff. So it'll be fascinating to see how this stuff gets distributed in the coming weeks. I mean, and I months. guess the point is the point is that you can't no one can ignore this. You know, at every level of society and business, you can't ignore it. Like this isn't something that you can just hope will pass. And it's different to when the internet came around because so many people dismissed it and i think there's less people dismissing the rise of ai there's more of a sense of an inevitability to it and i think that's why we're seeing such big reactions all over the place where you know people are like people companies everyone is is publicly announcing their stance on it rather than just waiting to see how it plays out well it's already having huge impacts i mean in my own day-to-day like when i'm working on projects now or i'm writing code I I said earlier, if I get a trace back, like, uh, which means just a problem with my code that the system's identified, I just paste the trace back now into chat GBT, get an instant resolution of what's wrong and what I need to fix. Whereas if I did that in Google, it used to be way too time consuming. And so for me in my day-to-day life, by embracing it, I'm now way more productive. I, I know I'm more productive. I couldn't live without it right now. And what's happening is in the education system, there's this company called Chegg. I don't know if you're familiar with it in the US. I certainly wasn't, but it's an education, like a a tutoring. It's tutoring essentially, but basically they came out and they said ChatGBT is having a hugely negative impact on their growth because everyone's just using ChatGBT instead of their tutoring uh, tools uh, and yeah. lessons and the stock was down 40 percent. so you can see it really starting to also just disrupt anything I mean, did, did they announce that <laughs> like yeah i don't oh, know did- why they came out and blamed their growth problems on chat gbt they did they said it like why would you <laughs> well i guess i suppose as a public company you've got to sort of explain things but jesus yeah that's that's rough that's tough yeah i mean on- i've i've done it so i'm i've think i've said a few times on the cast i'm learning german i've made a little tool that will speak to me and i can speak back to in german so if i don't know a word or a sentence or things like that i can ask it it'll explain it to me or you know for example if i write a sentence i can say what's wrong with my sentence and it'll go through my grammatical and other errors i made that in a couple of days it's helping me a lot um, as a sort of personal tutor. So I can see, like, it, it literally is helping me every day with my learning German. And um, so I could, I could absolutely see someone putting actual time into something like that. It could replace language education 100%. I think education is, is, is the rightful first disruption because it's making me smarter. As I said, I haven't coded in like a decade and I'm able to just rapidly move forward now with my like side projects for fun that I'm doing to play around with AI. Whereas without AI, I don't think I could do it. Like fundamentally, I think education is is the the best and 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 it's a bit of, it's a bit of, of fun bit of fun for the AI, right? Like puny humans trying to educate yeah. It's themselves. like look at this little, loser doesn't even do know what a basic how, traceback error is. Yeah. Little do they know how futile it is. Like, Even more fascinating, though, th- there's an article, um, AI is taking the jobs of Kenyans who write essays for US college students. So even ghostwriters, it's stealing their jobs as well. They're like, I don't have to hire that that Kenyan guy anymore to write my essay. I can do that, uh, you know, I can do that with ChatGPT. Yeah, I wonder how, like, companies, like, turn it in and those plagiarism detector companies will adapt to this. Like, is it going to be like an escalating AI war where they're writing stuff that looks for like watermarks or, you know, some sort of way to detect something's AI generated. Like they must be thinking about that. Yeah. And the other thing is like, um, you know, companies like Duolingo where you'd learn a language previously talking about languages and you'd use that app. To me now, my instinct, and I hate to say like, it's just, it's becoming like the just Google thing. My instinct is to literally just go straight to ChatGPT and be like, how would I learn a new language? What's the best approach? Can you you know, workshop this with me? Can you help me learn it? And I would just go there. So I feel like that's, th- th- these businesses are going to be insanely well, disruptive. Well, another, it's another case where LangChain and prompt size comes in, right? Like the techniques websites like Duolingo use are called space repetition. So the idea is that the things you make mistakes on, it'll repeat quite frequently. The things that you know, it'll still repeat just less frequently. So it's still staying top of mind it's like how software like that anki works where it's like a card you know like a learn flashcard thing and it 
does space repetition. The AI is fine for learning language, but one thing I've noticed with the one I built, for example, is it doesn't sort of, well, obviously because I didn't make it, but it doesn't remember, hey, this guy's struggling with this. We better chuck that in from time to time for him to learn. And I think that as you get more context, either apply Langchain so it can look for those things or just simply give it all the conversation history, then it'll get better. So again, like we've discussed many times, a lot of this is someone just being dedicated to a single problem and applying the technology to that single problem until they get the best use case there. Yeah. So like these broader broader LLMs, you think it's going to be more specialized and these specialized functions people will still use. Like there is going to be... That and what we discussed earlier, which is accessibility. It's like you know, anyone could theoretically do what I'm doing for language, what you're doing for code, but can a sort of average person who wants to learn German or wants to learn coding go do that? Probably not because they're, they'd need to know how to apply it all. Write but if the they right could? Jobs. Well, but that's what I mean. Like if they, if they, if, if someone can bring access to them through putting the nice, you know, like trimmings around it to make it easily accessible, then I think they will. Yeah. Yeah, I, and maybe, I mean, maybe this is what OpenAI is thinking about now, or as you said, maybe their focus is just go build AGI, be a research company, which is their foundation, really, and let Microsoft go and figure the rest of this out in their own applications. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I think they'll leave it to others to commercialize it, and they're really just going to focus on the core tech. All right, this has been episode 13 of This Day in AI. Thanks again for watching. If you like these uh, this podcast, please consider leaving a comment. If you're watching on YouTube, leaving us a comment as well would be great or a, a thumbs up or like or whatever you tell people to do these days. I really have no idea. But I do <laughs> want to say thank you to our audience. We are now in the top 20 of technology podcasts in the United States and various other high rankings around the world. So thank you for listening. I'm still amazed people listen to us uh, talk like we do and and trash talk the godfather of AI and do all these silly things. So we really appreciate you listening in. And uh, yeah, thanks for helping us grow. <laughs>